maybe get at a little bit about why it's so hard for Westerners to to see karma in the way that the Buddha talked about it, and um, and to really embrace the whole understanding of that part of the reality of Dhamma. I've been thinking about this um, a fair bit with regard to other things that have been coming up here at the Vihara are coming through. And one of them was a talk given by a wonderful Sri Lankan monk, Bhante Sumita. That means the good friend. And I can tell he really is a good friend <laughs> to everyone. Um, really sweet monk and very knowledgeable. And he teaches the bhikkhunis once a month on the full moon. Is part of our vinaya to have uh, a teaching from a very senior, well-respected monk every full moon and new moon. And Bhante Sumita uh, has replaced um, Bhante Gunaratana for us in that regard as Bhante G's um, kind of getting on in years. And Bhante Sumita this week talked about Kama. He talked about the, the shorter discourse on Kama that's found in the Majjhima Nikaya. And the story there is about uh, a Brahmin family. It's actually the son of a very highly respected, well-known Brahmin that we see mentioned in other suttas. And I think his name is pr pronounced Toyeda. And he um, Toyeda apparently was, like I said, a, a wealthy, highly influential Brahmin. But according to the, the backstory of this sutta, which is commentarial, he was also very stingy, very stingy. And he would even hide treasure from his own family. And then he passed away, and the sutta starts with his son going to the Buddha to talk to the Buddha about Kama. And the reason is, according to the commentary, that when Toyeda passed away, he was reborn as a dog. And the story, the commentarial story says that uh, the Buddha was was uh, the son was talking to the Buddha about his father's death and said, well, surely my father is reborn in the Brahma world because he was a Brahmin, a very, you know, a highly respected Brahmin. And the Buddha said, actually, no, this dog that you have now, this, this is your father. So that was quite shocking for Toyota's son. And he then, then this is what um, gets this part, this part coming up is what's recorded in the sutta, where Toyota's son comes to the Buddha and says, why is it that some people are, you know, born with a lot of wealth or, um, you know, status and have a lot of respect and other people are poor and are not, or they may have poor health or 
a short life. And the Buddha goes through all these different conditions and talks about what causes that. So, oh, I forgot a little bit of the story of the commentary. Um, when the Buddha told Toyeda that his, his father was this dog, he couldn't believe it, of course. And the Buddha said, well, do you feel like your father, um, hold on, my computer wants to uh, restart. We're not going to let it do that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <clears throat> said, so do you think your father hid treasure away from you? And, and he said, yeah, we're, he did, we're sure. He said, ask the dog. The dog pointed out where the treasure was. So that was the final uh, convincing that <laughs> Toyota's son had. Now, of course, all of this idea of being reborn as an animal is really hard for many Westerners to, to think about. And as I said, that is the commentarial part of the story. But the sutta from the Buddha uh, talks about the different conditions, that the ways we behave, the ways we act, uh, sets up the causes and conditions for certain things in, in future circumstances. And that's something that we can observe ourselves in this lifetime. You know, some of the things that we do, we can, or that we see other people do, we can see the result. I often think of, you know, what it's like if, you know, you greet someone and you're happy and, and kind versus greeting them with uh, anger and then what the result is. You know, this is something we can identify. Um, if we're um, kind and generous, then uh, the chances are better that there are people who are going to be kind and generous to us. But of course, we can't always directly see that and verify that in this lifetime. And, you know, we can see many um, people who are wealthy, who, you know, supposedly had been generous previously in order to come into that kind of situation, but actually they're quite stingy and harsh. And we see, you know, other, other circumstances that don't seem to follow what the Buddha teaches in this particular sutta. So one of the, so Bhante Sumita, you know, presented this sutta so beautifully, sweetly. And of course he's completely um, clear and sure that what the Buddha is teaching there is correct. And then one of the bhikkhunis asked at the end, you know, about this, well, and we, we Westerners have some problems. I mean, this bhikkhuni that spoke didn't have problems with this teaching, I'm sure. But she talked about how hard it is to help people understand this because it's not easy to see, uh, especially with counterexamples that we feel like we can identify. And one of the things that came up in the conversation, because Bhante basically said, yeah, I, I grew up in Sri Lanka. I've been a monk. I think he said something like 40 or 45 years. Now that means that he became a monk or he became a novice monk at a very early age because he's not that old. Many of the times I meet 
Sri Lankan monks who have started when they're maybe nine or 10 or 12 years old. And they grow up in the monastery, basically. And he's, he says, yeah, in Sri Lanka, people easily accept that whatever situation they're in is resulting from the karma of the past, the actions of the past. And, you know, whether that means you're sickly or you're healthy or you're, you're rich or you're poor or whatever other conditions there might be. And of course, the Buddhist teaching is that it's in this present moment that we have the opportunity and the ability to change the course of that, that it's our choices now that affect the future. And basically, Bhante Sumita was, you know, I have to learn from you, you Western bhikkhunis, you know, how do we, how do we help people understand how important their actions are and and how this works, this comma works. And one of the things that I've, that, that is a concern is that if people think that, oh, someone is um, disabled because of their past karma, maybe they did something. Um, that is, a, that is the, the wrong way to pick up this teaching, you know, to look down upon someone because of their situation that they, did something wrong in the past. And I asked Bhante Sumita about that. And he said in his 45 years as a monk or whatever, he's never heard anyone do that. He's never seen anyone think badly of someone for their situation. So, you know, one wonders if he's just living a super protected life or if in the Sri Lankan culture, the understanding of kama is so clear that it's, and I, and I also get the sense of this from the Thai culture, that it's not about looking down on people for like whatever kama or looking down on oneself for whatever kama might've been created in the past or being upset with ourselves for what has, has come, just that this is the natural unfolding of things. And that we have to work with the situation that we have at hand um, to, to, to deal with whatever it is and try to do that in, in conformance with the Dhamma. So it's a, it's a little bit difficult to express, but when I think about being in Thailand, when I think about what I imagine Bhante Sumita's experience to be, there is kind of a softness and generosity around this idea of whatever comma came before. An attitude of acceptance, but also, um, you know, just a kind of, um, like I said, a, a generosity around it, a kindness about it, you know, to uh, understand that as living beings, we make all kinds of um, we take all kinds of actions and make all kinds of karma. And that it's not so simple, the Buddha teaches in many other places about how karma isn't so simple, you know, as just, oh, a person acts like this and that is the definite result as it sounds in this particular sutta. That's why it's good to read more, more suttas and see the, the other, other um, ways of thinking about things and that, that also fit into the Dhamma 
and the nuances and the complexities. So I've been reflecting a little, well, for some time on the strong influences here in our Western culture that cause us, perhaps, perhaps cause us or uh, influence us in ways that bring about a resistance to the Buddhist teachings on karma and rebirth. And part of it, I feel, and actually another bhikkhuni brought this up in our discussion the other day, is that our culture is, has a tendency towards retribution rather than restoration, towards punishment rather than a kind of um, healing or lifting up of ourselves and others when we do things that are not in alignment with Dhamma, that are not as wholesome as, as we would like. And so it's, it's something that's, I think, worth taking a look at, even from some of the very roots of our Western culture. There's a book that I was introduced to when I was in ministry school and seminary, and that was an interfaith seminary. This book was written by a Christian minister. And it's not that I particularly recommend it because I think in many ways, it doesn't reflect the way I see things now, um, spiritually or from a religious perspective, uh, but it's called The Powers That Be. It's by Walter Wink. And the thing that stuck with me for, oh, now it's some over 20 years, 23 years or something, was this idea that he talked about called the myth of redemptive violence. I'm going to read a couple of, of little excerpts here from the book. And he is talking about nonviolence, which I was very interested in um, since back then and probably before. But what he said, one of the paragraphs is like this. He said, I had long since been involved in the civil rights movement and other struggles that involved nonviolence, but I had always qualified my nonviolence with the escape clause. If nonviolence fails, try violence. Not that I would use violence, of course, but others might on my behalf. I began to realize that if violence was my last resort, then I was still enmeshed in the belief that violence saves. And that meant that no matter how much I might object to any particular form of domination, I was still trusting domination and violence to bring about justice and peace. And I, and I certainly have seen this in myself and, and in others who really want to use nonviolence, but not having the kind of clarity that the Buddha had. And the Buddha was unequivocal about this. He was talking about it from a place of kama, that when we are violent, when we are harsh, when we kill, when we are oppressive, then we, we will <clears throat> experience the results of that. And they're not, they may not be the same as what we did, because the Buddha says, you don't get the kama back in exactly the same way. That's why we can't say, oh, someone who's got this problem, this is because they did this in the past. That's, that's too simplistic and it's not realistic. <coughs> and actually I find that 
at least the way it seems in my own life, that Kama is quite generous. Um, it's not, I feel like the, in the West, we have such a kind of tendency towards being punitive, to being punishing, that we impose that model over the teachings of Kama. So it, I think that's why we have so much trouble accepting it or understanding it. We, we have this model deeply rooted in us about punishment. And we, that is not what is in the Kama. That's not in the teachings of Kama. It's not a punishment. It's a, it's a natural unfolding of things. That's why you can change it. You don't have to be punished for everything that you've done. And, and when we punish ourselves, when we, when we beat ourselves up, it, we think we're going to be better, but it actually creates harm and damage inside. It doesn't make us better. It holds us back. If we can kind of start to peel away the layers of this kind of cultural imprint that we have in the West, of this kind of um, punishment or retribution idea. I think it could really help us. Now, I'm not trying to idealize Eastern culture and demonize Western culture in any way. Every culture has got problems and we're all humans. We have greed, hatred, and delusion. It's rampant around the world. But when we look at the teachings of the Buddha, the way he explained the Dhamma, um, Anybody, anywhere could be living according to it or, or not. And that's where we find that these teachings are actually true and that we have anywhere in the world, regardless of what our cultural problems are, what we've inherited, this is the opportunity for us to find um, a better way to live in real peace and happiness. So the part that actually stuck with me in this book is where Walter Wink introduces this concept of the myth of redemptive violence. He said the story, the story that the rulers of dominated, domination societies told each other and their subordinates is what we today might call the myth of redemptive violence. It enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. It's one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world. And then he goes into some of the stories of very early mythology in the West. And then he says that as he was looking at this idea, this idea of the myth of redemptive violence is that somebody does something bad and then the redemption comes from someone else, putting them down, wiping them out. That's how redemption occurs. And this is so embedded in our culture that it's, it's woven through so many of our stories. And in fact, what Walter Wink, he became fascinated with cartoons. And he said, when, when his children were small, he said, when my children were small, we let them log an unconscionable amount of te television. And I became fascinated with the mythic structure of cartoons. And he talks about, um, you know, this idea that um, 
nothing can kill this, this, this kind of like storyline that you see over and over again with an indestructible hero who is doggedly opposed by an irreformable and equally indestructible villain. Nothing can kill the hero, though, for the first three quarters of this um, show or comic strip or whatever, the person suffers grievous, grievously and appears hopelessly doomed until miraculously the hero breaks free, vanquishes the villain and restores order until the next episode. And he said, you know, thankfully, not all children's programs are like this, but he said so many of them really follow this same pattern. And he he talks about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the X-Men, Transformers, the Fantastic Four, the Silver Surfer, Iceman, Superman, the whole Superman family, Captain America, the Lone Ranger and Tondo, Batman and Robin, the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, Tom and Jerry, plus the Power Rangers, who are actually people acting. And then he talks about Popeye. Um, few cartoons have run longer or been more influential than Popeye and Bluto. In a typical segment, Bluto abducts a screaming and kicking olive oil, Popeye's girlfriend. When Popeye attempts to rescue her, the massive Bluto beats his diminutive opponent to a pulp while olive oil helplessly wrings her hands. At the last moment, as our hero oozes to the floor, Bluto is trying, in effect, to rape olive oil. A can of spinach pops from Popeye's pocket and spills into his mouth. Transformed by this gracious infusion of power, he easily dem demolishes the villain and rescues his beloved. The format never varies. Neither party ever gains any insight or learns from these encounters. They never sit down and discuss their differences. Repeated Defeats do not teach Bluto to honor olive oil's humanity and repeated pummelings do not teach Popeye to swallow his finish before the fight. Personally, I was um, subjected to a lot of Westerns in the 60s and probably later. And it was the same kind of thing. It starts out with somebody being mean or, or um, abusive and then the good guys subdue them usually with violence so what does this do to our mind i mean we can see people acting this out and we can think well that's just the natural way of things that's just how um, life works violence is part of nature but that's why we have this opportunity to go beyond our sort of animal instincts. In Thailand, when they talk about having the five precepts, they say that that's what makes us human. If we don't keep the five precepts, we're not really truly human. I think that makes a lot of sense. That we have this opportunity before us to peel away these layers. And I feel like one of the most, you know, I gotta admit, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a historian, I'm not a psychologist, but as a Buddhist nun, it feels to me like so many of us, including myself, we beat ourselves up so much. We have that, like, I'm gonna beat the evil out of myself. I'm gonna subdue the villain and it, or something, I'm not sure. But it's like, really consider, how do we talk to ourselves? What do we think of ourselves? And what do we think of other people? Can we, can we think in a 
in a way that's more restorative, that's more healing, that brings about um, the causes and conditions that support growth and development. And of course, we're seeing a lot of calls for our prison system in America to be reformed. And there's a beautiful example in the Santa Clara County where the person who took over, um, I can't remember what the, what the role is, but he's head of the, um, <clears throat> the departments that take care of the prisons and they're completely reforming it. So, so many fewer people it's, it's like the district attorney's office. Instead of asking, he said that one big change is instead of asking, like, what can we, um, you know, who can we convict for? What can we convict someone for? They ask, you know, what really needs to be pulled out of society? I don't know if that made any sense. But instead of trying to incarcerate everybody who makes an offense that can be proven, they try to look at what's really dangerous to our society and who should be restrained and, and supported in rehabilitation. And they're, and they're actually doing this. They've got so many fewer convictions in Santa Clara County now. And it's, it's like, this is, this is an opportunity for us as a culture and certainly for us as Buddhist practitioners to look at how we treat ourselves, how we look at other people, how can we bring more love, compassion, hope? And, and sometimes hope is seen as a bit of a, I don't know, too, too fluffy or something for Buddhist thought. But actually hope in the sense that there is, there is a way to recover. There's a spiritual, there's a path of spiritual recovery for anything that happens, anything that we do, anything that someone else does. It, but it starts with becoming conscious of what it is that we're doing and kind and compassionate, understanding that we all fall prey to defilements and that that's part of why we're humans. If we didn't have defilements, we wouldn't have been reborn here. <laughs> and, and that's okay. It's like, if we didn't have tremendous um, good karma, we wouldn't be reborn here either. And that we get this opportunity to move in that upward direction. And the Buddha talks about this in so many ways and the specific ways of doing it, like in, in, the, in the teachings on effacement and the Majjhima I think it's sutta number eight, laying out exactly how to go about it. So I just want to encourage um, some reflection on this deeper side of, you know, what we might have ingested um, frequently over decades that keeps us bound in a kind of a punitive way of thinking, whether that's directed towards ourselves or to others. And this, of course, the Dhamma requires wisdom. It's not like we just, oh, it's all fine. It's not that. But with wisdom, we solve the problems, not with violence or 
harshness. And we have this chance to purify the mind and really um, support each other. So I think I'll stop there with the comments and let's take some time for meditation. And then I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.